Well, welcome. I'm glad to see you today. Welcoming those who are worshiping with us online as well. Glad that you could be here for this eighth part of a 10-part series. We've been talking about the children of Israel and how God established a relationship with them through Moses and how they came together at Mount Sinai, how they were delivered out of Egypt and went to the promised land eventually, and how that relationship and that covenant was that he would provide a way for the Abraham and Sarah, all their descendants to become a nation, a people, the Jewish people. And that happened, of course. And then Jesus came along and he establishes a brand new covenant. And that's a radical thing. And that's what we've been talking about. And I want you to understand how disruptive it was for the people in the first century church when Jesus came along. I want you to imagine everything in the church and everything you grew up knowing and everything you hold dear and how that was the way that you practiced your faith all these years and suddenly things changed in such a disruptive and dramatic way that you really couldn't gather it all in. You couldn't even process it, much less understand it. Much of what occurred with Jesus was not understood until after the resurrection. When Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples and the people who followed him what it meant for him to die on the cross, how he would give his life and pay the debt for our sin, people couldn't fathom what he was talking about. They didn't get it. But after the resurrection, as we said last week, they did understand it very well. And Jesus didn't just come for the Jewish people, but this covenant was for everyone. It was for you and for me. And as Jesus goes in to enter Jerusalem, it's that special week as Passover is about to begin. And he rode in on the donkey over the Mount of Olives and they brought out these palm branches and they waved them in the air and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which simply means save us now. That was appropriate, wasn't it? You see, they thought the Messiah was coming to deliver them. Now they would no longer be occupied by Rome. Now he would set up his kingship. Now it would be like the good old days when King David and King Solomon were in charge. Now what they could do is they could follow him and they wouldn't be an occupied country, but he would, he would get rid of all those from outside the country and he would establish his new kingdom. But then as the people were talking to him, as he came in, it escalates and they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it got political. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, when they called him king, that was something that the Roman people would not have appreciated, right? Because Caesar was supposed to be the only king. And so now they're getting in trouble. And the other thing is that the Jewish and religious leaders, they didn't want to see him as king either. They didn't recognize him for that at all. And so the next few days, what Jesus would do would be so confusing to them that they wouldn't understand it until later on. It's hard for us to imagine today being in the middle of the process. We have the benefit of being able to look back and see what happened and see how history unfolded and how everything took place. But can you imagine being in the middle of it and Jesus comes along and you think he's going to do one thing, but he does something different from what you thought he was going to do and you just don't understand. But Jesus is going to fulfill the promise. He's going to make a covenant with God and with us that will make a difference in how everything happens from that day forward. You see, it was a different covenant than the one that God had with the Israelites. 
And so for the next few days, Jesus knows that they're out to arrest him. The religious leaders are threatened by him. You see, what Jesus represents is, is something new. And they like the system they've got. They've got a pretty sweet deal. And they don't want to lose their power and authority. And they've worked hard to get it. And they don't want anybody coming along trying to take that from them. In fact, we said last week that they wanted it so badly they were willing to kill him so that they could keep their power and authority. Are you a creature of habit? Do you like things a certain way? Do you get things the way you want them and get them all set up and get your ducks in a row and you don't like to change? How many people here like change today? Well, I want to welcome one person here who's here today. You know, when my dad took a psychological test one time, it said his greatest fear was change. And he's, he was an accountant, and, and he didn't like anything. He liked everything. There was a system. My brother is an accountant. You know, he eats one thing on his plate at a time. And then he eats the next thing, and then he, and he goes clockwise. I mean, you've got to do it a certain way. I said, you realize that's all going to get together in your stomach at some point, don't you? You know, but, but he likes it that way. I took a psychological test. You know what my greatest fear was? No change. <laughs> I, I got to have some change in my life, right? But most of the time, I'm a creature of habit too. There are things I like. I want to change the things I want to change. I don't necessarily want to change everything. Well, you see, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these teachers of the law, they, they were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus and they got a break. What happened was one of his closest followers broke rank. And the Bible says this in Luke, the 22nd chapter. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And it says they were delighted. Why were they delighted? Because they were afraid of Jesus. They were afraid if he set up his kingdom, then things were going to change. Now, I want you to think about Judas. What would motivate Judas, a follower of Jesus, to do what he did? Well, it was that very same thing. You see, Judas had in mind his picture of what the Messiah was supposed to do. And Jesus started talking about, instead of I'm going to wear the crown and I'm going to be in charge, he started talking about the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And Judas said, what's that nonsense he's bringing up? And Jesus wasn't doing what Judas wanted him to do. Now listen, listen. You and I are more like Judas than we want to admit because we like things the way we like them. And sometimes not only do we want to do what we want to do, we want other people to do what we want them to do. I don't have time for marriage counseling this morning. Don't be looking at your spouse and getting into it right now. We've got a whole message to go through. But sometimes we want to control the situation. We want to control other people. Sometimes we want to control God. I mean, that's what sin is. It's saying, I want to be God. I want to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do. And if everybody would just do what I wanted, the world would be a better place, right? Isn't that right? I mean, that's the way we think a lot of times, isn't it? And that's so foolish. And he went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple, and he said, I'll betray him. And they were afraid because they didn't want their life to change. Now, perhaps that's the reason that you're afraid of Jesus today. I'm talking to you. Today, if you're afraid 
to step out of your comfort zone, if you're afraid to follow Jesus, if you're afraid to be obedient to him calling you to do something new, if you're afraid, you know, a lot of times people are afraid to accept Christ. And here's what they think. If I do that, I'm going to have to give some stuff up. But Jesus really didn't come to take away. Jesus came to give us something, and that's what he did. He gave us something more powerful, more beneficial, more precious than anything we could have. He gave us the opportunity for eternal life. And so the stage is set. Now the kingdom of the world, and that's represented by Rome and by the Jewish leaders of that day, and the kingdom of heaven, they're, they're on a collision course. They're going to have a battle now because the kingdom of the world was clinging to life. But I want you to notice something about Jesus. Jesus wasn't clinging to life, was he? Those Roman folks and even the Jewish folks, we want things the way they are. We, want, we don't want anything to change. Jesus wasn't trying to hang on to his life. In fact, his intention was to give his life up for you and for me. That's why he came. And the Passover meal was the perfect opportunity for all this to come together. So he sends his friends out into the city. He says, find us a place where we can meet together. And that's how they came together in the upper room. And there they had the last supper together. And as the Passover meal began, something happened that was very disruptive. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Now, let me ask you a question. How many times have you heard that? If you have anything to do with church, if you've ever been in, in a service when we've offered communion, you know all about that. You've heard that phrase so much, sometimes we become deaf to it. In fact, Luke's version says, this body is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're very familiar with that. It's very, very clear. Something we know, right? But this was totally foreign to the first century people. And just before they're about to take their first bite, these disciples stopped and they looked at each other and they said, did he really say what I thought he just said? Wait, this is your body? Do this in remembrance of you? To which they could have said, hey, we've been doing this thing for a long time. Since we were little boys, we know what this is all about. In remembrance of God coming to Egypt and delivering us, the Israelite people, our ancestors, out of the punishment of Egypt and exactly how we were supposed to remember that. I mean, we've always done that with Passover. And Jesus probably smiled and said, things are changing. From now on, when you celebrate Passover, you will do this in remembrance of me. Now, let me explain something to you at this point. Everybody should have gotten up at that point and left the room. They should have said, this guy is contradicting Moses. And now he's trying to contradict the Passover. Something is wrong here. We don't get it. Jesus, you, you can mess with Moses, but you can't mess with the Passover. You can't make the Passover about you. Now, now let me see if I can illustrate that in a way that really comes home to you. Let's say this is September. Let's say in December I come in. So this December, we're going to do it all very differently. This year, things are going to change. You know, usually, December's all about celebrating the birthday of Jesus. But this year, we're going to celebrate my birth. 
It's going to be all about me. Every weekend, we're going to get together and we're going to have some new songs that have been written all about me. And then we're going to have a Joe Eve service and there's going to be a candlelight involved. It's going to be a great thing. And then I'm going to bring a big chair up here and set it on the stage. Then I'm going to sit here in the chair and all of y'all are going to tell me how great I am. And we're just going to celebrate Joe all December. It's all Joe, all December long. Now, if I did that, you would leave the church. In fact, if I ever do anything like that, you have permission in advance to leave the church because something is really, really wrong, right? Now, here's my point. What Jesus was saying was more disruptive than that. Jesus, you're great and all, but you can't make Passover about you. It was the beginning of the meal, and Jesus goes back to the meal. And they're thinking to themselves, maybe he misunderstood. Maybe he got the big head. They did have a big parade and celebrate him. Maybe it's gone to his head. And he wasn't done, though. So when they had their meal and they had their conversation and all these thoughts are running through their mind, after he supper, he took the cup. And then it says, this cup is. Now, at that point, they could have interrupted him and said, hang on. We know all about the cup, okay? This cup represents the blood that was shed by animals the night that our ancestors left Egypt. It was a lamb without blemish or spot. And they took the blood as God instructed and they put it over the doorpost and on the sides of the door frames. And then when the death angel came, he passed over their house and delivered them out of bondage to the promised land. That's what we've been doing. That's what we celebrate. We know all about that. We know what that's all about. That's when God established the new nation of Israel. We know what it represents. Jesus, could you just stick with the same 1,500-year-old script we've been doing since we were kids and before? I mean, you can't just change that overnight. Who do you think you are? Now, that's the way we are. We don't like change a lot of times. And if we start to do something, maybe God wants to do something new, we're not always receptive to something new, even if God does it. I want you to understand how disruptive this is. And the Bible says in Luke 22, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, you've had this old covenant. It's all you've ever known. It's the one God established with Moses. It's the one that he's brought to fruition. And now Jesus stands up and says, but we're going to have a new covenant now. Things are going to change. Can you imagine how difficult that was? The cup had always represented the celebration of God's covenant with the nation until that night. And that night, the new covenant was unveiled. And that night, they said, now from now on, when we do this, it's going to be about me. And the covenant is an agreement. A covenant's an agreement between two parties. And this new covenant would represent a new kind of relationship with God. This kind of relationship was one that lived in the heart. You could have a relationship with God directly through Jesus. You could know him and walk with him and love him and listen to him. The joy of the Lord is my strength. You could learn about him. And they question. And if they'd been paying attention, they could have said, well, okay, what kind of covenant is it? Because they knew about covenants. They had all kinds of covenants. It would be like, is it going to be like the old one with all the rules and conditions and punishments and blessings? Because we can't even keep that. Now, let's just pause right there, okay? 
don't, don't get upset. We're going to change things, all right? Just relax just a minute because what I want to do is pause talking about Jesus and the disciples, and I want to quickly talk about three ancient covenants. And if you got something, you might want to write these down because it might be something you're not familiar with, okay? The first covenant is a bilateral parity covenant. Bilateral parity covenant. And it's between two equals. Now, this is the way this works, okay? Two people get together and they say, I will if you will. If you do, I will. If you don't, I won't. If I don't, you don't have to, right? Just think business contract. That's the first kind of covenant that we've got. You, you with me so far? Well, maybe I should pause a moment. The second kind of covenant is a suzerainty covenant. A suzerain is a powerful person. This type of covenant, it was something like a king would dictate to his followers. They were the lesser power, and they didn't have much choice in it. This is kind of what God did with the children of Israel. He said, this is my relationship with you. It's a bilateral suzerainty treatment, a covenant. God said to the nation, here are the rules. If you'll follow the rules, I'll bless you, and your crops will grow, and things will go well. But if you don't, I won't bless you, and your crops won't grow, and things won't go well. If you want to read about that, you can read it in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Most of that about the rules and the punishments are in there. And in fact, when you read it, you go to yourself and you say, man, no wonder they couldn't do it. Who could keep up with all of this stuff? God was founding a nation of people, and he had to have rules and guidelines to follow. And then he said to the nation, Obey me. Don't worship any other gods. I'm a jealous God. Keep my rules, and you'll be safe, and your crops will grow. But if you don't, vice versa. And Israel's entire history then, and you know this, it went from being faithful to God to unfaithful to God. Faithful to God and unfaithful to God over and over and over again. We can relate to that, can't we? Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. I want to do what you want me to do. And then what happens? Somebody doesn't do things the way we wanted them to. And we get ticked off. And maybe we lose our temper. And we tell them about it. And then we go, Lord, I apologize for that. I need you to forgive me. I, I just messed up. Let's start over again. And so that was kind of something that we could be familiar with, wasn't it? And in ancient Israel, they knew all about being disobedient as well as obedient. In fact, one time, God put the whole nation of Israel in time out. Did you know that's where that started? Right there in the Old Testament. I, who knew that that happened that way? That's what happened. <clears throat> it really did. What happened was they finally abandoned God, and they started worshiping idols. And God say, I warned you, we had an agreement, you broke your part of the agreement. And so he took the leaders of the nations of Israel and he sent them to Babylon for 70 years, for a 70 year time out. And then they learned their lesson and he brought them back to their promised land. Now, that was with a, a suzerainty covenant. I'm the king, you're my subjects. If you don't follow my demands, then you're going to get in trouble. Now, the third type of covenant was a promissory covenant. Somebody makes a promise. But only one party in this agreement has to keep a promise. It's a promise made by one that's for the benefit of the other. 
I don't expect you to do anything for me. This is all about you. And all the ancient covenants had to be ratified. And how did you ratify them? Well, it involved blood and you had to kill an animal or animals for that to occur. And when that would happen, they would literally take the animal and they would cut it in half and they would lay it open there on the ground. And then if you had a covenant with someone else, what you would do is you would literally walk through the two halves of that dead animal. Y'all want to try this this afternoon? We walk through there. And here's what both of you are saying now. You're saying, you know, well, if I don't follow this, this covenant, well, what happened to this unfortunate animal happened to me? May it happen to me? Anybody want to sign up for that one? And that's what they said. Wow. That's all you can say when they do something like that. Now, let's go back to the promissory covenant because it's a little different in that they still split the animal in half. They still make the covenant, but instead of both parties walking between it, only one has to do it because one is making the promise for the benefit of the other. So back to Jesus and his guys at the upper room. Jesus says in Luke, the 22nd chapter, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He was saying, I'm going to play the role of the animal that is sacrificed. And I'm going to inaugurate and launch this new covenant in this way. To which if they were thinking straight, they could have said, okay, we get that that's your part, but what's our part of the covenant? And he would say, well, you're on the receiving side. All you have to do is receive. I am on the giving side. Another way to say that is this. It's for you, but it's on me. Kind of like when you buy somebody a meal. Hey, it's for you, but it's on me tonight. Matthew's account of these few words, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So they're trying to process this. And they're saying, okay, you're going to establish, Jesus, this new covenant. And you're representing God's interest in this covenant. And from now on, when we gather, we're no longer going to celebrate God delivering our people out of Egypt. From now on, we're going to celebrate the establishment of this new covenant. But now, what's the blood about? We don't get the blood part. Because remember, most of what Jesus is doing actively right then does not make any sense to them until after the resurrection. Later on, they would put it together, but not yet. You mean this covenant is going to be about your blood? You mean that you're waiting to step out? We thought you were going to take over and be the Messiah and be in charge. What do you mean this covenant is your beginning and that your blood is for the forgiveness of our sin? That sounds like a temple equation to us because we always go to the temple. We always sacrifice an animal. That blood is representative of something that can forgive sin. So that's what we've experienced our whole life. And now you're telling us that you're going to be the blood that forgives us of sin. Well, if even if that were true, they said you can only do that once. What happens next time? And they should have seen it coming because John the Baptist, we said when we began at the Jordan River, he saw Jesus coming down to be baptized there with the people around him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1, 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. It is frozen. It came up. Good. There it is. See, if it's on the bottom, until it goes to the top, I don't know that you can see it. I had to turn around and find that out. Okay. And the next day, the new covenant of that forgiveness of sin happened, and it was ratified with Roman nails and Roman steel. The empire that best represented the kingdom of the world was victorious for a moment, but God had something bigger in mind. The new covenant for every nation and every generation, not just for the Jews, but for everyone in all the world. This was the big one, the final one, the everlasting one. What Jesus did on the cross, he didn't have to do again. His blood would be shed for our sins from now on. And it was an unconditional covenant. It was a promissory covenant. Only one half of the relationship, only one party would act and inaugurate the covenant, and that would be Jesus, God's Son. It was a unilateral, one-sided, unlimited coverage that would be terms and conditions, but they would be different from the ones that God had with the children of Israel and Moses. Because the answer is, yeah, they would have some agreements, but it would be nothing like their terms and conditions and laws and ceremonies and stipulations when he established the covenant with them at Mount Sinai. In fact, if you were to ask John, well, is this really true? Can Jesus really die for my sins? Is that really something? It sounds too good to be true. And John would say, yes, in fact, he can. He's established a relationship with you and me. And if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you'll have an eternal covenant, an eternal relationship with him. And Jesus said, all I want you to do is follow me. And I know all about you. I know what you did, and I know what you didn't do. And I know what you promised to do and didn't keep your promise. But I want you to know, even though you can't keep your own rules and even though you broke all of mine, I want you to know that you're covered under this covenant that I came to give to you. It's on me, but it's for you. So just come on and follow me. And that's why the disciples were just so amazed. They couldn't believe what he was asking. Could it be that simple? That's because you and I are used to be treated, used to be treated differently by other people, but Jesus always puts us first. And that's why Jesus said, your perfect father, if you just have a simple way of trusting him, then he can be everything for you. So that night, Jesus made it clear, I came to replace everything from the beginning of Exodus all the way to the end of Malachi. There's a new covenant in town, but there's one more loose end that Jesus has to tie up. You know what it is? Well, you have to come back next week to find out because we don't have time today. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've done through Jesus for us. Lord, we're so grateful, even though it was such a radical thing, so different, such a departure, so disruptive to the people in the first century. We can see now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see how your plan came together and how it made all the difference for us. Lord, most of us aren't Jewish. Most of us couldn't be a part of that covenant with the Jewish people, but because of Jesus, now we can be a part of a new covenant a relationship with you. Your kingdom is real and it's in our hearts and it's with you and we can walk and live with you and you teach us that we just need to trust you and accept your forgiveness 
And that's what, what it takes to be your follower. And so, Lord, we want to do that. And when we fail, when we mess up, and what we don't do, what we're supposed to do, Lord, help us to realize that's just human nature, but that you will forgive us. And, and so we'll just turn to you daily. We'll confess our sins. We'll ask your forgiveness. We'll repent and turn from them. And we'll accept the grace and mercy that you offer. We're so thankful, Lord, that we can accept grace. Don't give us what we deserve. Give us grace, and we are grateful. And all God's children said,